This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. here and welcome to season six of the 50 Feminist States podcast. This is another mini season coming at you while we're sort of on hiatus due to COVID-19. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. This is a journey through all 50 of the U.S. states, hopefully eventually its territories and protectorates as well, to talk to feminist activists and artists about the work that they're doing in their communities and nation and worldwide for gender justice. So far, we visited 33 states, a few of which were only digital journeys due to the most recent road trip being uh, canceled due to COVID-19 and order to protect the safety of the communities we're visiting, the activists and artists we interview, and myself, Amelia, the host and producer of this podcast. But luckily, over the spring and summer, I had the opportunity to do a few interviews with people who found the podcast and wanted to be a part of it. And when I heard their stories, I felt like all of you should hear them as well, even if I couldn't travel to speak with them in person. So this season six mini season coming at you during hiatus, whatever we might say about it, is a really special one. And I'm so excited about the conversations that I have to share with all of you tuning in. Today's episode features Susanna Barkataki. She is an Indian yoga practitioner in the Shankarachara tradition. She's also the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute and runs Ignite Be Well 200 and 500 hour yoga teacher training programs. She's a speaker, a teacher, an author, and a yoga culture advocate working as a yoga unity activist. Our conversation was so enriching. We talked about decolonizing yoga on so many different levels. We discussed race, gender, cultural identity, the ways that cultural practices are appropriated by white supremacy and imperial cultures. We talk about how it feels to be belittled for your culture and then see it painted on billboards with white bodies taking your place. We talk about the ways that yoga has been and can be a feminist practice, but also the many, many failures of yoga in the West and the ways that it upholds oppression of so many different bodies. Yet even through all of that, we hold on to, and Susanna shares with us, how yoga has helped her decolonize herself, learn to love her identity, and become liberated. If you're a yoga practitioner yourself, I think you're going to love this episode. And even if you're not, there's still so much to learn here. I haven't practiced yoga in years, and I took away so much from our, my conversation with Susanna, thinking about identity, culture, race, gender, embodiment, even spiritual and artistic practices. It's all in this episode. And Susanna is such an eloquent speaker and teacher. I love talking to people when I know that they've thought through their story and are here to share it with us. And that's exactly how this episode felt to me. Just like a great conversation with someone who has so much to share and from whom I have so much to learn. 
In the show notes, you'll find links to go follow Susanna on Instagram and her website. I highly suggest giving her an Instagram follow. I love all of the decolonial yoga content that she's got going on there. You can also follow 50 Feminist States on Instagram, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you learn something from an episode of this podcast or listen to a bunch of them and always look forward to more, I'd like to invite you to make a donation on our Glow FM page. You'll also find that in the show notes. Those donations help keep the podcast online. And in the future, they're going to help fund fellow for new podcasters, particularly women, gender nonconforming, non-binary folks, BIPOC, POC, amateur podcasters who want to learn the craft. I'll share more about that at the close of this season. But for now, let's dive right into this conversation. Here's Susanna. Hi, everybody. My name is Susanna Prakitaki, and I am on unceded Seminole land in Orlando, Florida. And I am moved here about five years ago via Los Angeles where I grew up and from before that I was in England in the UK so I'm from a lot of places but right now in Orlando. And so I mean I want to hear about that entire journey over time but let's um, let me go back to the beginning on your website I was reading about how you've been doing yoga for as long as you can remember could you share maybe one of your earliest memories of yoga and how that practice began for you? Yeah. You know, growing up, I have an Indian father and a British mother, and I was raised with a lot of my father's culture and practices. And um, my extended family in the U.S. is Bengali and Assamese, which are two regions in Northeast India, um, really rich cultural um, and artistic parts of the world. And actually, interestingly, we could talk about this later, but uh, places where, especially in Assam, where there's uh, matriarchy, where um, the women rule. And, and it was interesting to find in my family life, my aunt, who really was the one who brought us as immigrants into the United States, she guided my whole life and all of our family's life, really, with yogic values. And so just little things like how we would re respond to a conflict or to a bully or something going on at school. And she would bring up the value of ahimsa, of nonviolence, and or of satya, of truth, which are two fundamental pillars of yoga philosophy and yoga practice. So my daily life was infused with yoga. But I remember you know, being really young, maybe four or five, and not being able to fall asleep. You know, sometimes as a kid, like something happened, I was really excited laying in bed. And my dad came in and he would sing me Assamese songs, Assamese lullabies, but he would also do guided meditations. So he had, would have me visualize a blue ball of light above my head, above the um, Ajna Chakra, the third eye, and then imagine my whole body being suffused with this relaxing blue light. And so that, which is a, a visualization practice, a dharana practice, a practice of focus and mindfulness, was, you know, an early yogic practice that I didn't know, you know, when I was four or five that I was practicing yoga, but it was a tool and something I used for the rest of my life up until now I use that if I can't fall asleep. Oh, I love that so much. This image of just like you as a kid being excited, like you said, and having trouble falling asleep and having that, that meditation. That's beautiful. Yeah. 
could you maybe paint a brief, I'm sure this is a long story, but um, giving us some cliff notes about what led from, from those moments in your childhood being imbued with yogic philosophy to now yoga becoming you know, your professional life, career, that passion. I'm not quite sure how you describe <laughs> it, but all of those things, I think. Right. I think of myself as a, a yoga unity activist and that oh. activism takes many different forms. I, <laughs> Whether it's <laughs> I love that. So, so yes, tell us about um, that journey and then what being a yoga unity activist means to you, please. You know, my whole life really was kind of predicated on separation, right? On mm. uh, when I was born, or actually even before I was born, my parents were told not to marry. Uh, they couldn't find anyone to marry them. And there was a lot of violence against Indians in the UK, a lot of, a lot of tension and, and discrimination, but they chose to marry anyway. And then even though they were told they would have half-breeds, they chose to have children. And I was their first child. And so I came into the world already, you know, uh, already kind of like embattled, right? Already facing a lot of trauma and separation and disintegration. And so, so much of my life, I had to struggle to address that and try to find a way to reconcile it within myself and make sense you know, of these forces that had shaped me and, and who I was, but that to some extent were beyond me and then also were inside me, you know? And so for me, yoga, understanding and practicing the indigenous practices, yoga and Ayurveda that came from my culture that I was being made fun of for, you know, in, in England, but also in the US and LA where I grew up, I was mocked or ridiculed, had to fight, you know, boys every day on the block that I grew up on, physically fight. So all of this was happening, kind of attacking me in my identity, both as a young woman, as a girl, and also as a brown girl. And then even more specifically as an Indian girl, you know, hearing things like go home or go work in your 7-Eleven or later um, terrorist, you know, those were the types of attacks levied against me all the time. And so instead of, you know, and I had a lot of internalized um, inferiority, internalized oppression, like so many of us, I think we, we can, and sometimes we like fight outside, but it still goes in, you know, in, internally. And so I, I was doing both. I was fighting, you know, and trying to defend myself, but also internally was beginning to believe in my own inferiority. And so in probably around uh, end of high school, while I was in college, I had this amazing collective of anti-racist activists, you know, queer feminist colleagues and friends who we really were just supporting each other and reminding each other of who we were and you know, giving each other places to stay when people were getting kicked out of their houses for being queer and all, all those types of things. And so one of our practices was to in, affirm one another in our own, you know, places of power. And so it was really through that group of friends, um, but it was just an ad hoc group. We just came together, you know, and, and supported one another. And they were like, hey, you know, why don't you study the practices that, that come from your your heritage, you know, even though these were the things I had been mocked for or made fun of for in the past. And I'm so grateful that I had that community to reaffirm for me, you know, who I, I was. Um, mm -hmm. I think 
sometimes we need that, you know, we need other people to lift us up. And so I began studying yoga and Ayurveda as both a tool of like self autonomy, you know, and, and believing in myself and where I came from, but it really became the pathway to finding that unity uh, within and then creating it outside of me because yoga really is a codified, developed, organized system of um, so personal and social change. And so that's how I came to see it, you know, what I was doing as being a yoga unity activist. Oh, that's such a powerful story. And I think it really connected to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is this beautiful line in your bio where you say, yoga helped me decolonize and love myself. Um, Could you maybe share a little bit about how you see yoga as this tool for decolonization and and self-love in your life? I think it obviously must relate to being a yoga unity activist, but I'd love to hear a little more about that decolonization part, if you can unpack that for us. Absolutely. You know, so many of the things that I was facing that I thought were just me, and I think this happens to us when we're impacted by any systemic oppression, you know, whether it's patriarchy or white supremacy or, you know, heteronormativity is like, I felt like it was me. Like I was the one that was wrong. I had done something. I wasn't good enough. You know, my skin wasn't light enough. My, um, you know, just my whole way of being wasn't right. And, and so in opposition to that, in resistance to that, I started to understand that actually there was a history to this that yogis and yoga practice and Ayurveda and Ayurvedic practice had been, you know, downgraded, had been called fringe, had been um, dismissed by the colonial ruling power in India. And so my family, for example, didn't even know a lot of their own history, even though they grew up after India was free of British rule. Uh, the lessons they were taught in Indian schools in India were lessons about British, you know, military feats, British accomplishments. And so just understanding that, how deep these kinds of um, dis, like dislocating us from our place of power, our history, our stories, our senses of selves, um, it was no surprise when I understood that, that I felt so little love, you know, that I felt mm. so disgust and and even and and hatred for who I was and so I was like you know this this is not oh this loving myself is going to be a project where I also love where I come from you know it's not going to be enough to just write affirmations or follow the things that people were saying to do to to feel good about myself I realized I have to actually love all of who I am and where I come from and what that means. And so yoga, um, because part of the practice is really about vichara, self-inquiry, and and spadhyaya, which is self-study. So, so much of yoga actually says the same thing, you know, that a social justice kind of lens would say, which is at our core, we are pure and whole and good and true and, you know, our fullest, highest, best self. I mean, the early yogis wouldn't have used the language of best self, but we can say, you know, we are, we are radiant and um, everything that we are meant to be is already inside us. That is one of the tenets of yogic practice and yogic understanding. And that things 
illusion, maya, gets put over that essential nature. And so what we can do then with our yoga practice, part of what we're doing is removing the illusion, removing the mistaken beliefs or the mistaken practices or whatever's getting in the way way of being in connection with that true divine self, which is really, you know, for many yoga practitioners, another way of getting to the divine or God, God is the universe, however you describe that going to differ for different people but um so yogic practice through practicing the ethics through practicing the values and um in removing that those veils and that in clarity leads us back to our true selves which is of course you know at its very core love you know loving self-loving interconnected with all things and all beings I I appreciate you connecting all those dots for me and everyone listening and it feels so obvious to me how deeply intertwined your personal and familial history, yogic philosophy, your sense of self, like all of that are these like beautiful threads coming together. I'm wondering what your experience was like then kind of entering, I don't even know what to call it, the yoga establishment in the United States or in the Western (laughs) world. (laughs) I don't like, I'm like a little bit like yoga industrial complex here, right? Like, It was so hard. I mean, it's so hard. And and the thing is, my story is echoed by so many other Indians, South Asians, so many other folks of color, uh, unfortunately, because it's, again, not an accident, right? Culture reproduces itself. And so white, dominant, white-centering culture, which was what yoga culture became, you know, in, in the West. So I, I began entering the kind of official yogic world. Uh, So I first actually studied Ayurveda, um, well, meditation, then Ayurveda, and then yoga formally, but I I couldn't like make my way in, right? I would interview or go to studios and um, it just didn't feel like a fit. And I think it's exactly because, uh, and often it didn't feel like a fit from their side. Like they would reject me or they wouldn't want me to teach there or they would say things like, you know, you can't chant in Sanskrit or um, nothing too authentic, you know, things like that, where it was just like, wait, what, what is it that you're actually doing? You know, and yoga in the West has often become synonymous with asana, which is the physical practice, mm-hmm. the postures, but yoga was never just the postures. In fact, the early yoga practitioners, you know, who are, and and keep in mind, they were practicing in nature, right? So under trees, by streams, uh, the foots, foothills of mountains, on the outskirts of cities, right? This was a, a counterculture practice, even from the start of, of its, um, these are like forest and renunciate practitioners practicing yoga, the early yogis. And they were questioning, are, how are these, like society as a whole shows us that certain things bring us happiness, you know, like material wealth or family or things like this. And they were saying, but wait, we have these things and we're not happy. So what is it that is going to lead us to joy, freedom, liberation, us individually, but also us as a community and us collectively. And so those early yogic practitioners actually didn't place a lot of emphasis on the body. The body was something to be utilized as a tool for spiritual liberation. And so it's so ironic that, you know, then you transpose 
yoga and, you know, thousands of years later comes to the West, which is a whole other story, but um, comes to the West and, and very much lands, um, begins on the East Coast, but, but you know, with, um, with Yogananda takes root in Hollywood and in the West and overlays with Western, you know, image-focused culture, body-focused culture, athletic culture. And that legacy, it has shaped what we see yoga as in the West today. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so when someone like myself or, or anyone else who's like, hey, can we, you know, focus on meditation or talk a little bit about yoga ethics or yoga philosophy comes in, it's just wasn't an easy fit. And so there was a lot of rejection, a lot of frustration, um, not to mention a lot of, you know, overt and covert racism and microaggressions. And so, you know, for many years, I just kind of worked in what I guess, like, not anonymity, but, but no one really cared what I was doing. Um, I, I would see colleagues who had started doing the same thing around the same time I had who, who were white, who became like incredibly famous yoga teachers. And I was doing similar things, um, but bringing in yoga philosophy and, and Ayurvedic practice and other aspects of, of what yoga is as a system. And, you know, maybe teaching three, four people in my backyard, you know, and, um, and I was okay with that. Because again, the focus I had from my teachers was, you know, just teach, we want you to teach the full expanse of what yoga is and bring it to serve uh, where, where you can be of service. And so I just continued to do that. But at a certain point, I got very frustrated. And I think it was around 2014, 2015, I'd come back from my aunts from a puja, which is like a, a sacred ceremony uh, to the fire, uh, Agni, and that night, so I was back home, you know, an Indian, uh, often, at least in my family, ceremonies, you know, they're supposed to start at five, they start at eight or nine, you know, it was very late, it was like one or two in the morning, but I got home, and I just wrote, like, it just poured out of me, this, like, how to decolonize our yoga practice, you know, our yoga practice is so colonized here in the West, and so I wrote this article and uh, I had a little dinky blog at the time, and I pushed, I put it up on my blog that night, like one or two in the morning, hit publish, um, sent it out to my email list, and didn't think anything of it. Posted, I think, on, on I think we had Facebook then, and um, woke up and had like 200 shares of this article. I was like, oh, you know, and up till, I had been writing for a year, but no one had ever responded to anything I had written, you know, and so this like, art cry all of a sudden resonated and um and I think it resonated because so many other people felt that there was something hollow and felt that there was something missing um and then you know even if they were part of the dominant culture and then for other folks of color and other Indians they were like yes this is what we're we're experiencing every day so um so that was really the beginning of like speaking about it and it's also so funny to me that you know, ultimately, I'm a yoga practitioner, just like anyone else. But what I'm known for is speaking about cultural appropriation. Um, and that too, and I'm fine with it, because it's part of, you know, part of my path. But originally, I, I was just a, a yoga teacher, you know, just like mm -hmm. anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like I often talk to activists and organizers who kind of live in that liberating and conflicting space of 
needing to have these conversations for their own freedom and wholeness in the world, but also sometimes just wanting to be a yoga practitioner or an artist without the labels of race or gender or class or other things coming to the fore of that and that kind of challenge of it's always both and, right? Like always wanting to talk about decolonization, but also maybe to be able to teach yoga without it being the only thing anyone wants to talk to you about sometimes I can imagine that space. Yeah. I mean, cause that gets into tokenization, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so what I love is talking about, talking about these things, but then going, going to, you know, yoga is really here as a vehicle to move through us. It didn't come to any one person. Mm-hmm. It's not religion. It came to a particular prophet it, it's a practice that has been evolved and codified and is continuing to, you know, be developed and codified and, and understood and practiced. And, and it's here for our liberation. It's here for our practice and it's here for our um, exploration and embodiment. And so that's the piece too I love to get to is, well, what does that mean? You know, how do we, how do we get to unity um, not a unity that denies our differences or, you know, tries to like say we're all one too quickly, but a unity that really embraces all of who we, we each are. Yeah. So I would love to hear maybe even more about that embodiment piece and how that plays into it and maybe in your work or in yoga philosophy more more generally. What? Yeah. You know, with yoga or honestly with any practice that we're we're practicing is leaning back to to the basics, like leaning back to the indigenous roots of these practices and and honoring them and understanding how to connect to them. And so that can be much easier when it's our own culture um, in a way, you know, sometimes it's actually harder because our cultural practices have been oppressed or suppressed or even outlawed like yoga was and Ayurveda was in India under British occupation. And so, um, and so yet we can all, we all come from somewhere. We all have points of origin. We have cultural roots. And, you know, a lot of early yoga practice was very much an earth-based practice, an elemental practice, a practice of connecting to the earth, Prithvi, of connecting to Agni fire, to Surya, the sun, you know, to Jal water, like to all these different elements. And so there's a way that, um, that, getting back into kind of a natural rhythm in my life or inviting people into that rhythm in their own lives, it, it helps us decolonize and unpack uh, what now is kind of white supremacist, like heteropatriarchal, rushing busyness, you know, being disconnected from ourselves. And so there's so many ways to do that. And, and yoga isn't, it's certainly not the only one. Um, there are many ways, but mm-hmm. for me, it's such an effective one, you know, because it's not a religion, uh, although it's developed and grown alongside many religions and has influenced many religions like Hinduism, Jainism, you know, Sikhism later, um, Christianity, Islam, um, and yoga has been influenced by many religions, most notably Hinduism, but it is, it is, it's always been a sort of kind of counterculture and revolutionary practice that's seeking to find freedom. So it asks that question, like, how do we find freedom? How do we embody that freedom in our own lives? And continually by inviting that self-inquiry, 
um, I think that's how we, we begin to embody um, our own liberation and our own practice is like, how can I be really devoted to and show up to that question of uh, my own freedom and not, and, and that question of my own freedom expands to, you know, who is the my, right? Like who is I? And, and so it's our own freedom. And then, you know, and, and it grows broader and broader and broader. And that's part of uh, a yogic practices. It, it expands beyond just the self because mm -hmm. as we're practicing, we begin to see the interconnectedness of all things. Mm -hmm. Before we kind of started recording, this is, I think, connecting to something you mentioned about the potential for yoga to be a feminist practice, more mm -hmm. specifically, and the, um, the ways in which I think yoga in the West has at times strived for that and at times very deeply failed in that endeavor. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you were thinking there and, and how you see the relationship between feminism and yoga, maybe both like its potential and what it actually is. There have always been, you know, women yogis and, and agender yogis and, um, but the majority of what we see in the Indian tradition are male yogis and yoga has often been coded as a masculine practice in, you know, historically. Um, so, so there is, I want to say there's like feminist strains and feminist elements throughout even yogic history. However, the way that it sort of got um, the dominant narrative transmitted yoga is as a very male experience, a male practice. And so when all of a sudden now, you know, you think of a yoga teacher, uh, like if I just asked folks listening, like think of a yoga teacher, or think of a yoga practitioner, or if I asked you to look it up online, right, Google it mm -hmm. or on Instagram, what, would, what we would mostly see would be a white cisgendered, thin, able-bodied woman. Mm -hmm. And so there's been this total revolution, right? If we've gone from a practice that was coded male, you know, and masculine to one that is represented predominantly by women, there is a huge shift and a huge shift too in the locus of power when we say, okay, you know, I'm going to go take a yoga class or I'm going to learn from a yoga teacher. For many people, that teacher that they envision or hold in their mind or that they go and practice with is going to be a woman, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so that itself isn't, is a really interesting phenomenon and how it happened, what are the, all the factors that contributed to it? I, I'm not even sure. I think that's a great research project for somebody. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but what I will say is, you, you know, there can be a way that even though the form of who is holding the position of power shifts, the structure that they're in and that they're upholding doesn't shift. And so mm -hmm. in that way, I think like when it's a body focused culture, when it's a body shaming or body hating culture, when it's goal oriented, right? All of those things. So even though the figureheads are female formed, there's still a lot of anti, um, I, I would say like anti-feminist beliefs and anti-feminist practices that happen in yoga culture, even though it's women kind of leading in many ways the, the yoga culture in the West. And so all of those things make me see the failings of the project, right, as, as a feminist project, but also the potentials. And so that's one whole piece of it. 
um, leaving out race. And then the other piece mm -hmm. that's really important is it's white centering, right? Because the practice shifted from Indian men to white women, you know, as the kind of locus of power. And so what is that? How did that happen? Um, what are the problems with that? And, and that obviously continues a kind of white centering and appropriation um, to say that, and, and we see this a lot, even with the really kind of like semi-woke yoga communities that are unpacking, you know, there's no one right way to do a pose or they're, they're wonderful philosophically, but there's still whiteness at the center. And so that too, um, for me, isn't a fully intersectionally feminist project yet, because it would need to, to look at and question um, who has the power, why do they have the power, and how can we consider re, um, like, rematriating that power back to uh, like indigenous women, you know, Indian women or um, Indian practitioners and doing it in a way where there's a shared uh, perspective of power and, and not just a shared perspective of power, but a shared authority in yoga in the West. And that, you know, we're, we're pretty far away from, but I think, I think there's a lot of movements out there starting it and beginning it and, and moving towards that. And um, I'm hopefully that that for me is part of what I'm doing. And there's another yeah. great podcast called Yoga is Dead that does that as well. And um, so many people speaking up and speaking out who are trying to move and change these practices like accessible yoga, um, you know, to be more, more available to everyone, but also taking into account what is it and who we mean when we say everyone and who might be left out and how do we include um, all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I think it's safe to say that your work is certainly like an important thread in those conversations. And I also found the Yoga is Dead podcast last summer when it came out. And, and I remember listening to the, the first episode, which is like, what, like yoga is dead and white women killed it or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like very clearly engages in these not just theoretical questions, but like the host of that podcast, like lived experience being shut out that you've also shared, like shut out of yoga spaces, even when you are from or within the culture that yoga and it is a part of. And I can't, I can't imagine that harm and that damage, but I am inspired by the, and excited by the work of your work and other people's who are really working to name that and, and fight against it. And I love what you said about kind of rematriating and decentralizing the power in yoga. I mean, it's the thing is, right, it's not an accident. That's mm -hmm. what the city is like. It's not an accident that Indians in general, like when we think of yoga celebrities, there's probably and, and not that yoga celebrity is the way to go, right? But it is one marker. We probably can't think of any Indian yoga celebrities except perhaps Deepak Chopra. And, um, and if there's only one, right, that this practice for thousands of years was codified, developed, organized by Indian people, uh, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't go to a sweat lodge, you know, or, or an indigenous First Nations, you know, Native American ceremony that wasn't um, led by an indigenous Native person. Um, it just wouldn't make sense. And, and it's the same thing here. It's like, why would we 
uplift and uphold and develop this practice uh, with completely erasing the people from whom it came. And I think it's it's because it makes it easier to exploit, right? It makes it easier to take on as our own. And also because it is such an effective practice and many people do experience a lot of liberation, personal liberation and, and you know, relief of suffering and feelings of joy. And so in a way we kind of start to feel like it's our own, no matter who we are. And, and it's mm-hmm. true that that experience is our own but it doesn't absolve us of responsibility to the practice itself, to yoga itself, and to, um, to part of its aim, which is equity and unity. Mm, uh, I think that's such a, such a profound statement. And that urge, that kind of motivation that you're talking about there of feeling something deeply and then claiming it as your own and in doing so erasing its entire history and context that specific thing feels like such a colonial white supremacist character like pow- characteristic of those structures to me that turning that personal connection into immediate ownership and erasure of context is just how so much harm has been done in yoga and elsewhere and i really appreciate you also naming that that's on purpose it's not an accident Um, that is a tactic. Like it's not just something that happens because we have deep feelings. Like it's a tactic that has been strategically used and that has been ingrained in so many white people in the, in the West and in the U S. Yeah. And the way, I mean, and this is getting a little provoking, but (laughs) and I'm going to just go there. I I don't, I'm not doing that. Or I don't think it's like how many, how many non-Indian yoga teachers who I've I've talked to and, you know, people can think for themselves if you were a yoga teacher or a yoga practitioner, um, but especially if you're a yoga teacher and an Indian person walks into your class, right? Is there a little discomfort? Is there a little bit of wanting their approval of wanting to not do it the wrong, you know, there's that. And so if we're feeling that, if someone's feeling that, then it's like, oh, there's something there. There's something not quite right. You know, if I'm wanting their approval, I'm wanting not to offend I know there's something a little bit, um, a little bit unsettled here. And, and that mm-hmm. is because maybe there needs to be some actual unsettling, yeah. you know, and moving, moving uh, out and making space and creating space for, um, for those voices and those, those folks who haven't had the ability to speak up and be seen. Yeah. I, th- I appreciate you kind of sharing that. And, um, and I have been paying attention. I mean, I'm not, I guess people don't listening, listening may not know this, but I am not a yoga teacher by any means. <laughs> I have been to occasional yoga classes in my life. I wouldn't even really call myself a, a practitioner in any um, consistent way. But I have started seeing more and more white women who have been yoga teachers kind of stepping back and stepping aside and writing about the ways in which their relationship to yoga when they really started to reckoned with the colonial realities of their whiteness and yoga led them to totally change how they practice or to in many cases stop teaching in order to be a student of it again Mm -hmm. Um, and i don't think there's necessarily just one answer to what people should do but i have found that really striking and i'm starting to see it more i don't know if you are yeah i mean what i see too you know and i think this is important for for folks to consider wherever we are, right? It's like one of the things we can do is like decolonize our our feed, right? Of where mm-hmm. we're learning, who we're learning from, and and sometimes for us that can be like 
oh, I realized I was learning everything from men and, and actually I want to learn from women too, or I want to learn not just from, you know, a white experts in this particular field, but I want to learn from a, a broad range of experts with many different experiences. And I think that can be a first way in is to look for like, who are we calling the authority? You know, who is the, the measuring stick of truth? Is it, is it an indigenous measuring stick or is it a measuring stick? And that, um, that perspective we can bring to any mode of learning or any particular kind of learning that we're doing um, yoga as well. And we can also collaborate, right? We can, if we are practitioners or, you know, quote unquote experts in a certain field, like just a concrete example, I run yoga teacher trainings and I have for about a decade is I'm not the only teacher on the teacher training, you know, and, and so there's, you know, black yoga teachers who come in and teach, there's Latinx yoga teachers, there's trans yoga teachers, there's, you know, other South Asian yoga teachers. And all of that for me is a really important part of me holding that role of quote unquote expert is that I'm not the only expert. And what I'm also trying to share with the students is they're the experts too, right? We're all involved in this learning together. Uh, and, and it's important to have a not a tokenized learning team, but a really truly representative and diverse learning team um, or teaching team. And then also um, that, that no one has a monopoly on truth, right? We get mm -hmm. to all explore. I, I can give people tools and critical thinking and share the tools and knowledge that my teachers have shared with me, but, um, but that each of us has a right and a responsibility to continue our, our own learning. And it can be so much so much fun and such a um, an empowering journey then mm -hmm. yeah yeah I um, as someone who like has taught in a college setting and thought a lot about the structure of teaching and learning <laughs> um, I always tell my students that I hope to learn as much from them as they do from me and I'm always working to flatten that hierarchy and make it more horizontal so that Mm -hmm. knowledge is shared through a network instead of top down. I think that mm -hmm. that can be such a powerful shift. I mean, I feel like we could talk for a really long time <laughs> about all of these things, but I think um, as we're, we're probably about time to wrap up and I would love to hear about the new book that you have coming out. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the book and where they can find it and why, of course, they want to buy it? <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. So I wrote all of the, what we've been talking about, you know, into, into a journey, into a workbook. Uh, it began as a workbook, an exploration of how we can honor yoga's roots and by doing so more deeply show up courageously in our own lives, you know, whether we're practicing yoga or doing anything else. So it's a book about the intersection of yoga as a spiritual practice and social justice and how we can engage more fully in social justice through the path of the teachings of yoga. And it, it, it's been quite a journey to write. Um, I, I would say it's like a, a book to come back to, you know, one to pick up. Uh, each chapter has, it's broken up into four sections. So the dealing with the problem of separation and all of the causes of separation, reflection on where our kind of social location and our role is in that, reconnection through action, 
what are the things we can act, do, you know, to make a difference and, and to, you know, try to, try to do something to address these problems. And then finally, liberation. How can we work for our own personal and also social um, and liberation for all beings and using the tools of yoga and social justice. And each section has reflection questions, things to, um, and action steps, things to, to do and bring alive, including, you know, even like form letters or letters you can take and then share with, um, with like if you see a workshop or an event that's, that's not very representative where you can, you know, take it and then write or places to reparations organizations. So it's, it's aiming to be both very um, reflective and uh, processed and even itself kind of a, a spiritual journey while also being very concrete and actionable. And I think I, I managed to strike that, that balance um, because that's, kind of who I am is I, I work in both and walk in both worlds all the time. And so I'm excited for it, you know, and, and to share and to hopefully do some, just see where it goes, you know, and, and invite people in to share with me too, how they're applying the tools that they um, get from it. So the, the place you can find it is on my website, which is Susanna Barkataki. So my name slash book. And you can also download, you can download a free chapter or buy the book there. Awesome. And I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Um, and if folks want to interact, engage with you in other ways, where can they find you online? Or I guess there's not really in-person finding anyone lately, but <laughs> where can they find you? Yeah. So I do a lot of, I like to call what I do on Instagram, my instigations. I do a lot uh, of in and asking provoking questions and um, giving, you know, resources like I recently did one around like six things to look for if you're um, looking for a decolonized yoga teacher training or is it possible to run a decolonized yoga retreat, you know, those types of questions and provocations and um, so on Instagram, which is just my name at Instagram. Yeah, I was looking through that this morning and I'm just like clicking on everything. There's so much to you're putting out so much amazing content and there's so much to learn. I, I'm just excited to know you and also to know the folks who are listening to this podcast who are wanting this too and working for this too. So I'm, I'm feeling grateful and heartened and even in, in the challenging times that we're all in, I think feeling that sense of connection. Um, so thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I feel the same way and so appreciate you so artic like naming that so so compellingly and and sweetly at the same time i really really appreciate that and i'm just so glad to have you as part of the i think of it as like the 50 feminist states family with all these amazing organizers and activists and artists that are all working for justice and liberation across the u.s and and many globally as well and it's such a joy to have you in the fold so thank you so much for your time this has been wonderful thank you
for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist Dates. You can find show notes at 50feministdates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministdates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.